The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But the Lord said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Hear the word of God. Thank you. First Samuel chapter 16 is the tableau we just experienced. As we're walking through the Golden Age series, what we're doing is studying the key people, the key themes. When the people of God were at their zenith, when they were at their best, what's going on? Central figure in the Golden Age is the person of David, and a central theme within the Golden Age is that of anointing. We've got three 
biblical observations, applications all smashed together. And, and, and I want you to know this. Uh, we're we're going to talk about this at the end, and there's an opportunity that, that each of us will, will experience in a, an aspect of God's anointing on our lives. But you could be a ro- anointed for a role. You can be anointed for a task. You can be anointed for healing. That's a topical study that would, would, would pan all throughout the Word of God. And specifically, as we walk within this passage of Scripture, the first observation we have is this, that God's eyes see the pursuit of heart. We well know that you can't judge a book by its cover, you know? You can't just, you, you can't just go with outward appearances. And, and we, we've all seen the, the, the person go, well, I didn't know they were that smart, but you know, they, they were. I didn't know they were that strong. They were that fast, but yeah, they were. We've all noticed people in situations in our lives that they far exceeded any kind of expectation. And we realize we, we, we really need to, we don't always see the, the fullness of that person. Well, doesn't it sound rather complicated to be a, a person who pursues after the heart of God? It would seem that the heart of God is so big and vast and amazing. There's no way we can kind of get it to comprehend. I know that to understand the fullness of God, that that is true. But I think the pursuit of the heart of God, I'm going to kind of tell you what I don't think it looks like, which we kind of think it does, and then what I think it actually does look like and feel like. It's, sometimes you might walk into a business, a bank, or whatnot, and they've got this, uh, these motivational, I'm going to call it a poster, this motivational thing up there talks about attitude and courage and faithfulness, and it shows mountaintops and grand ravines and these kind of things, and ah, oh, yeah, it's got that saying. Well, a handful of years ago, somebody came up with something called demotivators. You think you're looking at one of these really positive kind of pieces, but they're actually saying something kind of snarky and funny. And on one of these, I see traipsing across a long hilltop on an upward incline, a rather average looking guy who's got, doesn't look incredibly in shape, and he's just kind of trudging up the hill on this run. And a good 30 yards in front of him is a fit gal who's just, you can just tell her pace is, is really strong. And on the bottom of this thing, it just says, give it up, man. There's just, there's just no way. There's just no way that the likes of you are going to be able to keep up with the likes of her. She is going to outpace you. And I think in a minimal perspective, that's sometimes how we see the pursuit. of Like, I can't keep up with that. Going, I, I don't think that's really the pursuit of God's heart at all. I think it's more like this. When my oldest daughter, Cindy, was early on in high school, we lived in Wisconsin, she wanted to run in the Cornfest Fun Run. Now, doesn't that sound delightful? And Cornfest is all it's cracked up to be. The corn is good, and the ride's are there. Uh, you go for the corn and uh, they give you this broasted corn out of these broasters and you, you, you take it. And by, somehow by the swing set, they had paint brushes that, were, that had butter on it. You just go slather the butter on your corn. It was a wonderful thing. Well, in the morning, you could do a two-mile fun run or you could do a 10K uh, fun run type thing. In my little spirit, oh, Cindy wants to run. Okay, we'll run it together. Uh, I'll see you at the finish line, honey. That, that was my, my initial thought was, was that until my wife got a hold of me and said, you're running every step of that race with your daughter. 
You, you know, it's like, but, but, but I want to get a medal. No, no, no. You're running, you're running every step of that race with your daughter. And I realized that's where the wisdom was and that's where the joy was. And even though I could outpace her, I ran every step of the race with my daughter that two miles was a long way to go in that point in time. And we had this delightful journey together. Okay, I think when we pursue the heart of God, let me tell you this, that God knows how to pace us. That God, God is not going to outpace us. God wants to have this experience with you. So know that this is a reality for you. And in understanding, do, do I, how do I know that I have a heart after God's own heart? How, how would I know that? Reverence. Let me give you two examples of, of David's reverence for God. One of those pops up in the very next chapter. It's chapter 17 where David and all of Israel, the army of Israel encounters Goliath and the Philistine army in the valley of Elah. Well, Goliath is doing these defiant kinds of shouts and they're going to have this great battle and they believe whoever wins this battle, their God is God. And Goliath says, mano, mano, let's forget all the bloodshed. Let's just, you bring out your best. I'm the best. Let's go. Let's go. And King Saul wants no part of it. He's the current anointed king of Israel. And by the way, uh, David's older brother, Eliab, he wants no part of it either. David's older brothers are there serving King Saul. David is sent by his father, Jesse, to bring supplies to the army, to bring food to them, and to bring some report back to dad and let them know how things are going. And now we catch Eliab's heart. We catch David's heart. We also catch Eliab's heart. David comes and Goliath has been giving these taunts towards God and the people of God for days upon days. And Saul, although he won't go out and battle him, is trying to motivate someone to go do so. And Saul has declared, if, if anybody goes and defeats this, this enemy of God, I'll let them marry my daughter. They can be part of then of the, the king's court. And as well, I'll exempt their father's family from all kinds of taxes. David hears this and said, well, what will be done for the person who takes this defiler of, 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 of God and does away with him, and they repeat these things. And Eliab, his older brother, comes up to him and goes, blah, 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 blah. okay, who do you think you are? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how wicked and conceited your heart is. You just came down here to spy on us. See, and we just learned that David doesn't have a conceited heart. David doesn't have a wicked heart. He has a heart that pursues. So we realize that Eliab's all kinds of sideways when it comes to his heart. He hears possibilities of the things that God can do and goes, nope, 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 nope. He, he's jealous. He's envious. He, he puts on other people ill motives when they don't have ill motives. But it is out of reverence for God that David understands, I'm going to go pick me up five stones from this little Babylon brook. I'm going to take my slingshot, which I'm really good at. And he understands this concept that Saul is thinking that we're going to have a ground battle, a ground soldier against a ground soldier. And, and that was the reference to them. But also, they were very aware of throwers, uh, slingshots and javelins and, and that kind of bit there. And David's going to go, I'm not going to go ground battle against ground battle. You're never going to touch me. I I'm going to be a thrower in this thing. And Goliath realizes what's going on. What, am I a dog that you come at me in sticks? What, what's going on here? He says, he sees the slingshot. He realizes he's changing the whole battle tactic into a throwing contest for him and, and, and whatnot. And, and David goes forth out of this extreme reverence for God because he desires to give God glory. He realizes he's in covenant relationship with God. Amazing. Well, 
Not only do we understand if we have a heart after God's heart when we move when it's time to move, but there, we understand that we have a heart after God's own heart when we wait when it's time to wait. Now, some period of time has gone on. David has defeated Goliath. He has great acclaim. Saul has given him great leadership and authority. He's leading the armies of Israel. But now Saul's become jealous and he's chased him away. He's trying to take his life David is hiding out in the wilderness in the cave of Adullam. And even next week, there's some really interesting things that take place at the cave of Adullam, and we're going to explore those more fully. But right now, while he's hiding there, and his men are all in the back of the cave of Adullam, Saul's soldiers and Saul are seeking out David. What do you know? Saul, it says, here's what scripture says, Saul came to relieve himself. And if you're thinking what the person next to you is thinking, Saul came to relieve himself. I wonder if it's number one or number two. That's what you're thinking. That's what you're thinking. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, because you would go, I wonder what the biblical scholars have to say about that. And you look, they, they conjecture. I'll tell you what the biblical scholars think. They think Saul was doing Occupati. Number two, they really do. They, they land definitively that they think it's Occupati that's happening, not just potty, but Occupati going on. And the reason that they say this is because there's some period of time must have gone by. And David's men are saying, this is the day God has delivered your enemies into your hands. Go take your kingdom. Go seize it. And what David says is, by no means, I will not lift my hands against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. This theme of being anointed runs all throughout the context of the golden age. Hmm. Saul's anointed, yet he's struggling in that role but David is by no means going to take him out of that role so he can usurp him in that capacity. But here's what he does do. He does sneak up in the cave. Saul's taking care of occupy business, apparently, the biblical scholars say. And he cuts off a portion of the hem of his robe. Saul exits the cave. And here's what's really interesting. It says this, that, that David was cut to the heart because he did that. All right, that, that feels real odd, doesn't it? Because you go, wait, David, wouldn't you feel magnanimous? Go, yeah, I, I, I had reverence for God. I didn't take his life. And he did, he did. He did all the right kind of things right there. But he felt really sideways about cutting off the hem of Saul's robe. Why so? Here is why. The robe, who gets a robe? Who gets the king's robe? Only the king gets the king's robe. So it is a symbol of the king's authority. It is the symbol of the king's kingdom. Thus, when he takes a portion of the robe, Saul exits the cave. He waits till Saul gets a safe distance away. And he does have this conversation with Saul. And it's a very real conversation. It's very poignant. And it's basically what he's telling Saul is, hey, King Saul, your kingdom, it's a divided kingdom. And just like you might play with a little kid, you go, oh, I got your nose, uh-huh. and they get a little bit, I got your nose, which is kind of a fun game to play until they get, take that really too seriously and get wigged out. But basically he's going, I got, I got some of the kingdom. And it's for real. He really does. That's what's going on. But he's cut to the heart that he would enact in such a way because out of reverence for God, he needed to have reverence for Saul. And out of reverence for God, God was saying, wait. We know when we are people who pursue the heart of God, when we move when it's time to move, and we wait when it's time to wait. Well, 
Not only does the anointing indicate that, that God sees the pursuit of our heart, but the anointing that we explore in 1 Samuel 16 tells us that it overcomes an underdog status. It's a repetitive theme within the word of God, within the story of God, that somehow God has a heart for those that you just don't think their story is going to play out quite as grand as it will. Thus, in that culture and context, the eldest son it would be would get twice the land, get twice the finances, would get twice the inheritance, would kind of get more responsibility and authority. That was just kind of how things rolled. But you see younger sons, oftentimes the person of, of Isaac towards Abraham is incredibly blessed. The person of, of Jacob, one of Isaac, Isaac's sons, is very blessed, a younger son. And Joseph, one of the younger sons of Jacob, is incredibly blessed, and those stories go on. And by the way, the status and role of women in the Old Testament and throughout scriptures is, is incredibly uplifted when it comes to the context of the cultures and the communities that were taking place right there. God is constantly taking those who appear to be in underdog kind of statuses and lifting them up. And you go, wow, it's amazing what God has done. And God was able to use someone that came out of that kind of story in that kind of context. And I don't know about you, but, but you might see yourself currently or have seen yourself as an underdog. I'm an older, I'm, I'm an eldest son. And that is my role. But I identify with this story and I identify with this story in the way that when I look at my graduating class out of Bartlesville High School, 550 of us walked that line when it was graduation day back in 1984, and I was the youngest of that crowd of 550 that walked across. I always remember feeling in the context of my peers like such an underdog, and I was sort of behind. And some of that I realized because I was one of the youngest other kids in the class behind me that were older than me and things like that. So I would say for you, in some kind of context, you might view yourself in that capacity. All right. Question. Oh, let me, let me, let me hit this first. Immediately after David's anointed, we hear, we didn't, we didn't explore this in our tableau, but the next portion of scripture talks about how an evil spirit comes and goes from King Saul, and those in the court felt he needed a good musician to help him. David was an outstanding musician, was called in to go to the king's court to help. But but we really wonder about the timeline. When, when did that exactly, how did they, how did they, it is like, this seems very abrupt. There's no introduction. The reason why those things are slammed together so quickly is because the writer of the word of God wants us to understand that immediately after the anointing came upon David, God's creating opportunities for David to put him in the king's court. Immediately after that anointing, you got to know that David's getting said, well, hey, uh, why don't you go hang out at the king's court for a while? Hey, um, immediately after that, we wind up seeing the, the battle that takes place with Goliath. And, and we see that all the time, David wasn't aware of it. Maybe he was, but, but the aspect of being a shepherd. And we see how he writes Psalm 23. But he is able to use his shepherding skills in defeating lions and bears. And then he defeats the giant Goliath with those same tactics and skills as well. And that 
proves him well. He then creates this wonderful relationship with the king's son, Jonathan. And, and, they, and all of those things, the relationship with Jonathan, the defeat of Goliath, the time that he spends as a musician in the king's court, all these things are blessing and favor that God is giving him opportunities to understand the kind of things that he's going to need to be king. I believe God's doing those kind of things in your life as well, underdog. I believe there's some very steady things happening in your life like shepherding and God's building into you different kinds of skills and different kinds of abilities that David would hone the slingshot and he'd hone the harp in those days. And then God's giving you some outstanding kind of favor in some, some ways as well. When we moved here back in 2007, uh, I, I really think my wife happens to be a wonderful teacher. And she taught for a couple years in a Christian school, and she'd taught in a variety of settings in churches, and she'd done kinder music, and she'd worked in special needs classes and reading classes and all these kind of things. But what had seemed to be for a while after we landed here a few years kind of elusive is catching that good old, that good old full-time teaching gig. And nobody was hiring teachers when we moved here. But after a while, Terry landed one of those jobs. And there's this sense, there's a tell this, I want you to see kind of the, there's some special things going on in your life as well. I've taken Lego robotics teams, middle school kids into her kindergarten room. They show off their robot and it's amazing how Terry can navigate a classroom to get kids to listen and follow along. Um, and she sang, she sang this little song. I don't even know what it was, but it's a lineup song. And she just kind of walks through and sings through and sings this song. And the kids, they just all follow and line up. And then she wraps up the little song and she says, with my hand on my hip and my finger on my lip, we're going to the hall. And one of the, one of the other moms of the Lego Robotics goes, oh, that's a good teacher. And she just kind of watched that in awe. Uh, she, she was teaching summer school this summer. She pulls out her flute. She begins to play her flute, and it kind of mesmerizes the kids. One of her teaching buddies goes, oh, yeah, you play the flute too. Yeah, okay, uh, that kind of deal. All right, now she's got a skill that only anointed teachers, well, maybe some other folks have this skill, but she doesn't need a whistle uh, for the playground. She, she doesn't need that at all. And even, I think, uh, oh, you're, you're back. She came out to help out on this. Uh, <laughs> you didn't know you were going to be on the camera, did you? Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't either. Okay. All right. So she can call. Would, would you, you don't need a whistle. Would you just kind of whistle, whistle them in? There you go. She just calls, calls the kids in and she whistles and they come running. You can do, why don't you really bring it this time? Can you really bring it? Can you do it again? This one's just, okay. That's not teacher whistles. Yeah. That's not teacher whistles. Thanks for exiting the children's room to come, to come help us that way. Um, so, <laughs> and with that, she's gone back to teach the kids. All right, there we go. Uh, there's a point in time when David... Is again pursued by Saul in the wilderness. And he and his buddy Abishi sneak into the camp at night. It says everybody's under a deep sleep. 3,000 soldiers are under a deep sleep. And David and Abishi go all ninja-like. They take Saul's water jug. They take Saul's spear. They exit the camp undetected. Question. Is that David and Abishi's ninja-like skills kicking in, or is that a miracle of God? I think it's both. 
I think this is, these are the kinds of things that are telling us that David has been able, because he is anointed and he understands that, he is developing skills and abilities that are helpful. At this time in his life, he's a leader of soldiers and he's developing those abilities. But at the same time, 3,000 soldiers at the same time under a deep sleep, hand to God, most definitely. When you are anointed, you will find that you will be developing things and skills that not everybody else has. And you will also be finding that God is giving you favor and opportunities to enact on those. Uh, There's a conversation that takes place the next morning as Saul gets up and where's my stuff and my things and David has gone to a safe place and he's up on a hilltop and he kind of tosses them back down and says, enough already. I am not against you. I am for you. Will you please stop chasing me? See, I was right by you. I mean you no harm. And Saul's cut to the heart. Will you pray that I might be forgiven? And, and he's just devastated in this moment that he has sought. David, I want, I want you to know that when you are anointed and when you, you might think yourself to be an underdog, but God will begin to change you and God will begin to change the people around you as well. And so there's this temporary shift and there's this temporary change that Saul experiences. But I want you to know, we'll talk about this more next time. All, all kinds of people gather around David and their lives are changed for the good towards God as well. It's an amazing thing when you experience the anointing of God and what God wants to do in your midst. And one of the requests that Saul has is, when you come into your kingdom, remember me and remember my line. The reason he says this is because you understand that back in ancient days, you know, if somebody became the king and it wasn't part of their family, like, just, you know, just do away with anybody else who might have some kind of bloodline there. And we can wind up thinking that that act is something that's back in old in the olden times. And I know about a hundred years ago is a long ways away, but it's not necessarily incredibly that far away. I was watching documentary about the czars of Russia. It was really interesting on Netflix and just watching these documentaries. And good old Nicholas II was the last czar of Russia, married to Sabrina. They had five children. And I'm watching just very interested in what's going on in Russia uh, and uh, on the, uh, towards the end of World War I or right around in that time right there. And what I didn't understand was I thought the family went, they were exiled. No, they took them down to a basement and they did them all in. Like the kids and everything. The 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 only living being that walked out of that room was the little dog. I was, oh, I was, I didn't know the story went down that way. David did not deal with Saul and his line that way. Saul's son, Jonathan, would have a son that later on he would find this individual, bring him back into the king's court. He treated him like one of his own sons. That God gave David incredible wisdom as an anointed person. Um, Thirdly, it indicates the arrival of God's spirit. The person of David, the person of Saul, in the word of God, through the book of Samuel, there's this incredible comparison and contrast between the two. As David is increasing, Saul is decreasing. As the Spirit of God comes upon David, there's this evil spirit that bothers Saul. It kind of comes and goes from him. But what happens in the life of Saul is this. 
that we see these indicators. There's a time that a sacrifice is supposed to be made before they are to engage the enemy. And Samuel is intended to make the sacrifice, but Samuel doesn't seem to show up at the appointed time. So Saul just said, I go do it myself. And he goes and he does it himself. Well, out of reverence for God, he should have waited for God. Instead, he went and acted. When Goliath comes and there's that moment where Saul has every opportunity to step out in covenant relationship with God and be the defender of the people of God and the nation of Israel, he holds back. And so in the moments and times with, out of reverence for God, he should move, he doesn't, or when he should wait, he moves instead, we see that taking place. And he would say, I, I'm doing it to please the people. I just want to keep people happy. He, what he winds up doing, and some of you, I believe you've been anointed for various roles and you've stepped into them, but I want to challenge you. Maybe there's that sense that it's just become a position and you're just trying to hang on to the position, and it's become about pleasing people. And all of a sudden, it's not about doing ministry and serving God greatly and wildly. It's just a, this position. And I want to remind you of your anointing, that you would take it and that you would embrace it, that you understand that God's Spirit is on you. Years ago, my friend Dirk, who's a principal, and he's a fantastic principal. He's an amazing principal. His school was going through a variety of just really difficult situations. And there's this sense that Dirk was, God, somebody's got to come in and really help me. And I remember going to Dirk and I took, I took my anointing oil and I said, Dirk, God has called you, my friend, to, for this moment. You're a great principal. And this is a moment like no other kind of moment, but God has called you into this moment. And I anointed him and reminded him of the task that God has called into underneath that role as principal. And sometimes there's that sense that we just, we need God to work in an area that we're sick physically or there's something spiritually in our midst. And the word of God would indicate to, to be anointed by oil and to receive the prayers of those who are leaders within the life of the church. And that's a, an appropriate context, too, to remind us that the Spirit of God is upon us. In fact, David would write, uh, as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It says, as a sheep, you anoint my head with oil. Sheep were anointed for oil to keep the bugs and the stuff away. It was a sense of healing in their midst. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to close the service. We have, we have a couple of songs that we're going to sing. And really, as we say, invite you. I, I really want everybody to participate. Up in the loft, we, we, have, we have the participatory aspects for you as well. But in a little bit, we're going to have people that are going to come to the front with anointing oil. And as we sing, we're going to have ushers that will indicate when it's the turn for your row to come forward. And, and here's how I want you to say it. If you've ever seen the episode of... The soup Nazi on Seinfeld, it's going to go that quick. I mean, there's a real distinct way to do this. You give it your name, and then you pick one of those aspects. You would be, I'm Jim, and I'm a dad. That's a great, a parent is a wonderful aspect to be anointed for. Um, you might say, I'm a teacher, I, I build homes, I'm a nurse, uh, I'm a grandparent, some kind of task, some kind of role that you have, or maybe there's a task I, you know, there's a, I, I, I have to lead a retreat. I have to, whatever that task would be. Or maybe you just want to say, I have surgery coming up. They will know what to pray for you in that moment. And they will do that. I invite 
those who are anointing to come forward. I invite everybody else to stand, if you would. And we're going to read some scripture together to prepare ourselves for this. And the first two scriptures are what Jesus spoke in regards to anointing. And they come uh, to us really from the book of Isaiah that he is proclaiming. Let's loud and proud. Here we go. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let's keep going. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And many of you participate in those kind of things, and you'll be reminded in seeking that anointing. Let's read on in the book of James. Here we go. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Friends, God sees the heart. He sees that you want to pursue. He, he loves working with underdogs. May you be reminded in this moment that the Spirit of God is on you. And so the ushers will walk to you row by row. Come on up and uh, treat them like a bank teller. Just come on up and it's time to, when it's your moment, invite you to receive God.